0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday service. I'd especially like to welcome those of you here to the Expanding Light for the weekend workshop, I believe, uh, How to Become a Channel for Divine Grace. We also, I believe, have some people here for permaculture as well, so welcome. And I'd also like to welcome those who are watching online. I hope it's not too late for you. My name is Naiswami Sadhna Devi. This is Naiswami Jaya. Today, our reading is number 40 from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda, Comment, commentary on the Gita and the, and the Bible. In surrender lies victory. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it and your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. A case might be made for surrender as a path to victory in worldly conflicts, the way of passive resistance, for example, in preference to armed resistance. But our point here concerns a higher kind of surrender, the surrender of our our deluded egoic will to the wise and almighty will of God. Human will is, as Paramahansa used to say, guided by whims and limited understanding. The divine will is in harmony with every level of reality. Though the divine will sometimes appears to us at first to be wrong, it proves always, eventually, to be for our our highest good. Human will is inconsistent. It leads us one day to success, another to disaster. The divine will, when we surrender to it completely, though it is not always easy to do so, always brings us deep inner peace and joy in the end. Jesus Christ demonstrated this perfect surrender to God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was captured and imprisoned, preparatory to his crucifixion he went apart from the others to pray and asked them to pray also but when he returned to them he found them asleep out of his love for them he excused them saying the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak he then urged them again saying watch and pray their weakness in, these, in those circumstances was particularly sad, and the disciples themselves must have regretted it bitterly later on. We all know the symptoms of human weakness, though we may excuse them in ourselves, saying, well, after all, I'm only human. But what are the signs of true strength? We find in all cases that these are the fruit of a life wholly surrendered To God. The Bhagavad Gita lists those signs in the 13th chapter humbleness, truthfulness, and harmlessness, patience and honor, reverence for the wise, purity, constancy, control of self, contempt for sense delights, self sacrifice. Perception of the certainty of ill in birth, old age, and frail mortality. Disease, the ego's suffering and sin. Detachment, lightly holding thoughts of home, children, and wife, those ties which bind most men. An ever-tranquil heart, heedless of good or adverse fortune with the will upraised to worship me alone unceasingly. Loving deep solitude and shunning noise of foolish crowds, calm focus on the self perceived within and in infinity, these qualities reveal true wisdom, Prince. All that is otherwise is ignorance. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh,
1: <laughs> Welcome to everybody, and it's my honor and pleasure to be able to share with you this morning. It's been quite some time, perhaps many years, since Sutton and Davy and I have had a chance to be able to lead Sunday service here at the village, and so it's a joy to be here again with you. Before I begin today, I would like to ask a favor of some of you in the back. I have an empty row of chairs here in the front. (laughs) Would I... Can I find some volunteers to come forward and fill it? You know, that actually does help the speaker when we uh, fill the front. So I would, I would urge the ushers in the future to try to uh, have people come up. The, uh, today's topic is surrender, God's will, all of these topics that we heard discussed here in this morning's reading. And I would like to begin by, with a reading from a poem that was a favorite of Paramahansa Yogananda, English poem, perhaps his favorite English poem. And I'm just going to take a section out of it. Many of you know this poem, but for those of you who don't, I'll explain a little bit about what uh, what it is. It's a metaphorical poem. It's called The Hound of Heaven by Sir Francis Thompson. And it's metaphorical in the sense that in this poem we have a hound chasing a deer. And of course the hound is representative of God chasing the deer, which is the individual soul. And the deer runs from the hound, the bane of the hound coming after him and he runs and tries to escape. He's fearful. He doesn't want, of course, the hound to catch him. And so he runs and runs and runs. But finally, exhausted, the hound catches up with him and the deer surrenders. And as he surrenders and the hound comes up to him, the hound, in this case God, speaking to the soul, because this is representative of all of us. We think of the spiritual path as the individual, I'm seeking God, I'm running after God. But actually here we're seeing it quite in a different way. It's not so much that we're running toward God, we're running away from God. That's the nature of how we find ourselves in this dilemma. We're running away from God and we're afraid. But God is ever pursuing us. And so he begins here, this is the last few stanzas of the poem. The hound speaking. Whom wilt thou find. To love ignoble, ignoble thee. Save me. Save only me. All which I took from thee. I did but take. Not for thy harms. But just that thou might seekest. It in my arms. All which thy child's mistake. Fancies is lost. I have stored for thee at home, rise, clasp my hand and come. And the deer says, halts by me that footfall, is my gloom after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly. And then the hound, ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he who thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. And in a sense, this is the spiritual path. The spiritual path, we come to that point where finally we realize that ultimately we have to stop the running, ultimately, and turn our face to the light. I think in a sense, I asked the singers this morning to sing that devil worship because in many ways, I've, I've, it's one of my favorite songs of Swami, but it represents that, that basic attitude that what we need in life is light. You can't beat out the darkness with a stick. Now, when we look back at Ananda, there was, I remember in the very early days when we started Ananda Village, and I first came up to, up to here in the late 1960s, one of Swami Kriyananda's very fondest hopes at that time, he held it very very keenly, was he wanted to have a monastery as part of the Ananda community. He felt, he felt it was significant that we had that expression because it, it was a few people, he felt, if there was a few people who through their outward life, through their outward expression of their life, would embrace and represent the highest quality of all, which all of us are ultimately seeking, which is renunciation, which is another way of saying surrender. Ultimately, we surrender as we renounce. He felt that that was extremely important for our community, and so it was not long after he we first began the community that in 1971 he proposed that we start a monastery, and he called it the Friends of God. And a group of us uh, gathered together and with Swamiji, and that monastery began, and it, uh, it continued. And a few people joined that monastery, myself and Sada Devi, and some others I see here in the crowd today, that uh, were part of that initial effort. And for various reasons at that time, it did not succeed in the long run in that form. And I think the basic reason it did not succeed was because we as a community at that time were not yet quite ready for the monastery, that expression. We didn't yet have the maturity of understanding as a community about what a monastery and what a renunciate order should be and what the, the principles, how they should be expressed outwardly. I won't go into all the various, various reasons, but one thing particularly I remember is that as we developed that monastery, we in the community as a large, we had, by self-definition, perhaps two definitions of people in the community. We had renunciates, and we had those people who were not renunciates. <laughs> you could say that seems to be an obvious dichotomy, but actually we came to realize as time went on that that was a mistake to see renunciates and non-renunciates. And perhaps it was one of the reasons that we had to take a new form for it. Because what Swamiji ultimately came to explain to us, and as this initiative of having a monastery evolved in the community, he wanted us to understand that we are all renunciates that everybody who is a member of Ananda, and as you could say, this is a defining principle of Ananda, membership in Ananda means that you embrace the path of renunciation. And secondly, you embrace the path of discipleship. And you could say that Ananda membership is based upon those two principles, discipleship and renunciation. Now, when we look back at Swamiji's life, of course, we think about what was that outstanding quality that sticks in her mind. And I think most people would say discipleship. But if you look very closely at Swami's life, you also see that he expressed that discipleship in renunciation. And that too, those two principles are what Ananda is based upon. So Swamiji, some years later, as time went by, uh, the first monastery, we, it morphed into something else. And ultimately, what we began to do and what Swamiji proposed is that we started a new renunciate order. And it's the non-renunciate or, order, which still exists to this day, although some of you may know it as the Sevaka order. It's, the name has changed, but in essence, that's the outgrowth of that lesson's that we had learned in that very first effort that we can't see either or, that ultimately all of us are renunciates in the deepest sense. But it's not renunciation in terms of outward expression. I renounce home, family, you might say the traditional sannyasi tradition of walking off into the forest or up into the mountains. It's deeper than that, that's an outward expression of something that is very important within, that's the renunciation of ego, that sense of me, my, mine, all of those sorts of things that keep us bound in this little self-identity of who and what we are. It's that, ultimately, which we have to renounce. And I th- rather than using the word renounce for today's purposes, why don't we use the word surrender? because it's a matter of simply giving it up, just letting it go. God, you could say, is asking us to come back to him, and all we need to do is just let go. Let it be, let it go, and we find that very naturally we embrace in that process, we embrace the the path of renunciation, and God gives himself to us. If you look at Swami's life, the, he started this renunciate order, but he started it in a very unique way. It's something that I think is very inspiring and very positive. And I, he wrote something that I'd like to read about renunciation and particularly about his approach to this. He said, The present need is for a life of dedication, yes, but in simplicity, not in poverty, in creative self-expression, not in unthinking submission and obedience. How can people be inspired to give up their natural ego-centeredness? Now, isn't this, this is really the question when we talk about renunciation, we talk about surrender, I don't think anybody here would disagree with those principles, but the question really comes down to how? It's not so easy to surrender, and what do we surrender anyway? How do we do that? How do we and so the Swamiji answers that question for us? How can how can people be inspired to give up their natural ego centeredness? To do so would seem to flout one of the fundamentals of human nature the solution is simple. Don't ask them to give up egotism or egoism, but only to define their ego fulfillments more broadly. For example, once the good of others is honestly seen as more conclusive, conducive to personal happiness than grabbing whatever one can for oneself, it becomes relatively easy to include their happiness in one's own. Even the most all-pervasive human tendencies can be redirected, given a strong enough motive. Why, for example, live for God rather than for self-gratification? Simply because God's love and joy are infinitely more gratifying. And I think this is exactly the, so clearly represents Swami's orientation toward the spiritual path. And it's, that it's basically the principle of what he was expressing in that little song that we did. He was so positive. He always took the positive alternative. He says, don't, don't ask people to give up their natural egotism or egoism, but rather ask them to embrace something more. Ask them to embrace the light. This is what this is the natural direction of of the human heart. It wants to embrace something more. And if you look throughout history, you see that these are the examples of people who are so very inspiring. You look at the life of Saint Francis, and why does it stand out so beautifully? It's because he was embracive. He didn't he didn't talk about people's uh, fo- or uh, faults or he didn't uh, uh, admonish people in that way. But he always reached out to something more beautiful, something more expressive. And so so people naturally were able to respond to that. I think this is why such people and such saints throughout history are the ones who inspire us. It's what we do in life. It's what we do on the spiritual path, not what we don't do that really defines us. And if we look toward the positive things to aspire to on the spiritual path, I think this is what ultimately is going to take us into the light. Representative of this example, is, or is an example, is a story that Swami always used to, uh, one of his favorites, I think he liked to speak to. Certainly in the last number of years that I've been listening to Swamiji in India, he's He's rep- he said this uh, story many times, perhaps because it's of an experience he had in India, and so he would repeat it there. But it was the story of his meeting of that very old sadhu uh, in Puri many years ago. It's reputed to be 130 years old. And so obviously he had something going for him. So he was, a, it was a, a something of a holy man. But when he went to Puri and he... he sought his darshan to speak to him, the sadhu told him that he should not look outwardly for enjoyment in anything in this world. Absolutely not. It should be avoided. And Swamiji asked him, well, what about a beautiful sunset? Should I not enjoy that beautiful sunset? And the sadhu said, no. And Swami, of course, didn't say anything to the sadhu because that would have been disrespectful. But in his own heart, he said, how dry. What a dry path to God. And that certainly wasn't Master's path to God. Master was embracive. And so in the same way, Swami says, why can't we embrace beauty? Why can't we enjoy that beautiful sunset as an expression of God? Why can't we get God's manifestation why not live in that type of joy? And this is the same thing if you think of St. Francis. Wasn't this also the way that he expressed his spirituality in his life? And uh, so he, if you look at Swami's life, you see almost everything that he did is very characteristic of this outward, embrasive, see God uh, attitude, seeing God in everything. Now there's a, there's a, uh, word in Sanskrit, vairagya. And vairagya means dispassion. And dispassion, of course, is what you could say. Typically, dispassion is, vairagya is understood as expressed by that sadhu, not you know, not being uh, uh, outwardly attracted, or, or you might say putting aside everything outward. But Paramahansa Yogananda has said a very interesting thing that I read years ago about Dispassion. Dispassion is a natural quality that arises in the heart as a result of intense devotion and love for God. And what Swami was saying is, is and it goes on to say, that dispassion without an accompaniment of love is dry. And so... Naturally, when we love God, when we seek God, when we feel that presence in our heart of God, ultimately what happens is we don't want anything else. Everything else, as Master said, why will you be attracted to stale cheese once you taste good cheese? (laughs) Or as, as he said to Swamiji when Swamiji asked him to help him overcome his his uh, like for good food. He said, ah, don't bother. You know, don't bother. When ecstasy comes, it all goes, all goes. And turn to the light, seek the light, and uh, you'll find that in that devotional ardor for God, naturally these other qualities come. And so you read in the Bhagavad Gita, in the reading today, they talk, what about... Swamiji says, what are those good qualities that come from a life surrendered to God, naturally come from a life surrendered to God? And so he lists all of those, probably a dozen, two dozen qualities that are natural to us that are ours naturally when we surrender our life to God, when we renounce that sense of egotism. But the question is, how to renounce that is by embracing by expanding our sense of who we are. And what happens when we embrace, when we expand? What, we, what it naturally begins to happen in the love for God, we begin to forget that little sense of I. I am surrendering this, oh no. I am surrendering that, oh no. Do I have to give that up to it? And you see, and in that preoccupation, of I am surrendering this, I am renouncing this, I, it's self-preoccupation. And we find that we begin thinking about ourselves. But in the natural enjoyment of God's beauty or God's, God in an expansive way, we automatically, it goes aside and we completely forget what that is being given, any of those things that are being give, uh, given up. Another favorite story of Swamiji's that he would often speak of is the life of the Sufi saint, Rabia, and lived many centuries ago. And Rabia uh, was a woman saint, and in her latter years, her body was suffering. It was ill, the body was in pain, and three disciples of Rabia, as the story goes, come to her, And the first disciple, seeing Rabia there on her bed, obviously in discomfort, says to her, says to her, (laughs) a true lover of God, a, a true lover of God is one who is willing to suffer for the love of God. And Rabia, hearing that, sounds very nice. Rabia, hearing that, says, that smacks of egotism to me. (laughs) And the second disciple says, a true lover of God, perhaps it should be said, is he who is happy to suffer for the love of God. And Rabia said, no, that too is not enough. More is needed. And the third disciple says, Mother, you tell us, who is a true lover of God? And Rabia says, replies to the disciples, says, he is no true lover of God who does not forget his suffering in the contemplation of the Supreme Beloved. You forget all that little sense of I, self-identity, self-identification, all of it, in the, in the love of God, that's, it's forgotten, it's gone. This last week, I was scheduled to uh, give a little satsang or participate in a satsang with the monks over at Inspiration House, but through various circumstances, it was canceled. <laughs> and, uh, the various timings were not right. And so uh, we didn't have it. But as I was leaving there, or as I was going, I was, this is, I think, what I would have liked to have said to him, is to really, we need to have a monastery here. So it was something that was very dear to Swami. He wanted to see that, and he wanted to see it in a traditional form also. It's true, all of us are renunciates, but he wanted to have some also express it in the classical sense as well. I was there and that was actually in his latter months there in India, he had brought it up a number of times. And he was one of the things that upon leaving, he had told the people in Pune, please do everything that you can to help to make that a reality and continue as he left at that time. So it's something that that was important to him. But the essence of that, renunci- of that monastery it has to be renunciation. And the essence of that re- renunciation for all of us has to be love God, serve God, live for God. And in that, we, re- we don't have to think about what am I renouncing? Because in the love for God, we forget all of those things that take our mind elsewhere in serving others, we forget our preoccupation with ourselves i 'd like to conclude with one final short story, little story, and this is the uh, in the story from the of of the Cherokee Nation, and there uh, tradition, of course, is to pass on knowledge, the elders pass on knowledge to the young ones. And there was a grandfather passing on knowledge to his grandson, and he told the boy, says, within each one of us there are two wolves. One wolf is evil, he represents hatred, Anger, jealousy, greed, disharmony, all of those tendencies. He says, but there's a second wolf also within each one of us. And the young boy says, what is the second wolf? And the grandfather says, well, the second wolf is goodness. All of those qualities, love, kindness, honor, service to your your tribe, your nation, being you know being a good being a good good person, all of those qualities of goodness also are within you in that second wolf. And so the little boy, thinking about this for a little time, says, "Grandfather, the two wolves are fighting. Yes, which one wins?" <laughs> And the grandfather says, the one that you feed.